Welcome to the Cardio Garage. I'm Corey Cope. I'm Freddie Woff. Ah, we got to take two. Damn it. <laughs> Dose. Amigo. The shitty ass, rainy ass weather just all of a sudden dropped out. We were like 11, 12 minutes of this episode and said, and then. How about if I do the rest of the episode like Rip Torn? <laughs> Jesus. So anyway, let's just jump right to it. We're going to try to recreate what we just did, but not really. So we're, we're doing Feber Buried. Feber Buried. Fruit Brute by Fabergé. <laughs> yeah, by the end of the month, we'll... Yeah, we'll have it. I'll figure, thing, figure uh, yes, it out. I'll remember how to say it without fogging it up. <laughs> last week, we did... Uh, we had, last week, we had White Sands. Roger Donaldson. Yeah. Good time. And and like we noted in the episode, I think some... I mean, a lot of people probably haven't seen that movie, but today's 1984 Flashpoint, I think, is seen by even fewer people, which is a bummer because it's a... It is quintessential 80s and yes. in a very, at a time when you weren't seeing this kind of movie. No, totally. You just weren't. No, no, no. This was a movie, th- this movie feels like it was either 10 years too late right. or 15 <laughs> years too early. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, 10 years too early, right? It seems like it should have been 1974 or 1994. Right. This feels like a lot of what you were seeing in the early 90s with the with that independent movement. It's very much in that one false move kind of yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, as you said it, what did you say? It's desert noir is probably yeah. the best way to describe it. I mean, that's what it is, right? It's like, you know, yeah. it's very noir, the setups, uh, very similar to uh, White Sands. Um, right. mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's definitely noir. Like all the all the pieces, you know, if you're looking at it as, if you're chessboard, uh, all the pieces are there, right? Um, and yeah. and uh, all, the, all the characters that we want are there and, we got Chris Christopherson and Treat Williams like leading the fucking charge here. Yeah. Both of them are just so. Yeah. Top <sighs> of the game. I mean, you, dude. Right. To me in like 1984, I mean, dude, I was looking at, I was watching this the other night and I was like, fuck dude, Chris Christopherson is the coolest motherfucker. <laughs> right. Like his just low, just like his delivery and just like, you know, the, 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 the register of his voice. And, you know, it's like, God, man, dude. Chris Christopherson. <laughs> yeah. And, we, and this is like the 11th or 12th HBO movie, but this is its first theatrical. Yeah, totally. I saw it in theater. Yeah, which was a pretty wild. And here's what's funny. Everybody associates HBO with Warner Brothers. I mean, they've always been a subsidiary of it. You know, But what's funny is that TriStar yeah. is the distributor on this. So even Warner Brothers wasn't, wasn't vibing with that whole theatrical thing. So I thought that was an interesting choice there. Yeah, it's weird because this, although it does kind of feel like some of those other movies, I mean, like, you know, this this is from that same run of time where we got things like the Glitter Dome with uh, James Garner and Lithgow and... God, uh, Florida Straits with Fred Ward and Raul Julia. I mean, but Flashpoint, I saw in a theater. The rest of those movies were all just, you know, things that were on HBO. And I remember... (laughs) Ditching, I remember cutting Spanish, like fifth period <laughs> Spanish, to go see Flashpoint. I mean, I cut. I've, I think I've told. I think I tell this story about once every fucking two months. It seems like we cover some movie that I cut school. No wonder I didn't pass uh, Spanish. <laughs> I was always off seeing movies. Right. I mean, dude, th- this movie has a lot going for it, and and yeah, there there's some like you said, it's quintessential eighties, and, and there are points of it where it really looks like. You know, looks like 80s. And, and again, it also being a theatrical release, there are moments where you're like, oh, it, it probably 
you know, it looks TV. It reminded me like the interiors, like I said, when before we got on the mic, it, it's got that sort of like those Charles Bronson or Lone Wolf McQuaid, you know, right. it, it has the production value of those movies, but it has a lot more. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's on a different level than those movies because of the right. cast, because of the writing, the score by Tangerine Dream is fucking yep. sublime. Yep. And dude, Treat Williams, dude, how dope is Treat Williams in this movie? I mean, he's, he's so great, man. I mean, I think like you, you, you mentioned, uh, um, I forget when we were talking about it, but I think oh, just off mic, like a week or so ago, maybe two weeks ago, you're talking about, you hadn't seen it since he had right. passed and uh, you started, you, we, that was part of our discussion before we lost all of our recording. Yeah. Right. But he is, he's usually pretty low key. You know, and he and he kind of goes for this, and you made a comparison to another uh, duo that pretty, fits pretty strongly in here, and not just the first movie that we're going to discuss, but that's its sequel. You noted that these guys are very much Riggs and Murtaugh yes. in the way they conduct themselves in their job. Yeah, totally. There's even a moment in there. It's kind of a throwaway moment too, but it just kind of it sets up the the two guys and where they both stand in uh, in their jobs. It's a very much a embassy moment from Lethal Weapon too. The way it all all plays out. Again, I'll spare you this thing. Just you, you'll see it and you'll appreciate what we're saying when you get to it because this is on Prime, so it's readily available for you to see. Well, we're two for two right now. We're two for two. So far, so good. Next week's the same way. It's, we're so, well, we should be three for three by the time you get to this. And you got an extra day this month, so that's good. The thing about this movie is, like we noted, is that this is the first HBO movie in the theaters, and TriStar handled everything for releases for the most of the its infancy all the way through 91, and that's when Warner Brothers got on board, and I think the first thing they did was Switch, was the first movie with with Ellen Barkin and Jimmy Smith. That was the first thing they had done theatrically. But what's interesting, though, is that this wasn't a, 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 a low budget. $84, $10 million. That's not a throwaway no, money. You know, that's, it didn't do well, but I'm very surprised that there wasn't more behind it. You know, I'm, you know, for TriStar to take it on and distribute it in the theaters, granted, it was an August 31st drop. So sure. It was kind of late in the summer. And that nebulous, you know, we, we talked dumping about. Dumping ground. You got we, January yes. dumping ground. And this is the this is the late season dumping ground for But for do you movies. want to know why I think it didn't do well? Let me just, let me just open up my bag of conspiracy. <laughs> Conspiracy, you say? Yes, conspiracy, I say. <laughs> if you think about what the movie is really about, maybe it hit a little too close for home, a little too close to home, and somebody Could was be. like, mm-hmm, you know, we'll let you release your little movie, but you might want to throw that thing away, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because, there, dude, I, I love the plot of this movie. I love the yeah. whole, like, the discovery, as, as we discover with Kurt, with the... With, uh, through the speech, through through the the um, when Kurtwood Smith shows up, the way the story is revealed, you know, as as these guys, I'm, I mean, I don't, I'm, how much am I giving away? They find a jeep with a suitcase of money, a long range rifle, and a, a map to Mexico, right? right? In a jeep that got lost in a storm sometime in late November 1963. So you put the pieces right. together, <laughs> but right. it was that's what's so great about that opening is that. You know, even though I've seen the movie a couple of times, at least twice, I always forget the reveal 
always forget right? it. Like fucking always forget it until he's in the library. I'm like, oh yeah. Oh, right. Right. And even then enough time passes in between that you've forgotten. At least it's been in the back of your mind now because there's enough going on there to kind of distract you. And this is another one of those ones I feel like we have to watch walk delicately, you know, without like right because you don't want to ruin out. it. Because the, what yeah. what makes this movie great, especially the first time you see it, is is the reveal and and the, right. and the uh, and the steps that our guys take. You know, they're doing all the right things. You know, to, when they find right. the money, and it's just like, is it slowly, slowly sort of unfolds in front of them? And, I mean, and right. it, what the actors do a great job of, especially Treat Williams, man, is. Yeah. is just the display of uh, of panic as the noose sort of tightens, you know, with everything that's going on right. in Wyatt's world, they're about to be replaced by machines and right. technology's creeping in. And, um, you know, and he says to Bobby, he's like, well, look, dude, you're smart. <laughs> I'm not. I mean, right. you don't care about this job. It's all I got. Right. I love as, as we introduce these, as we get introduced to the other, the supporting characters, because the supporting characters in this movie, this is a really good cast. You know, oh, some, yeah. of them, some of them, were household names and known to us. And some of them weren't, it was, it was the first time we saw them, like Miguel Ferrer. <laughs> like, who, right. like when you see him in the movie, you're like, is that Miguel Ferrer? Yeah. Or is that his son? I don't know. That's him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he looked, he's so young in it, man. What was he yeah. like? He was in his 20s at the time, right? But I mean, yeah. you know, he, yeah, he was, oh God, he was, he was 29. Right, twenty eight, yeah. probably when they shot this, and he looks right. and then twenty <laughs> three years later when he and Kurtwood end up in RoboCop together. Yeah, right, he, his hair is like Kurtwood's hair is in this. Correct. <laughs> when you get to yeah, that the point. little bit of hair he had in nineteen eighty four had totally gone south by nineteen eighty seven. Um, but Kurtwood Smith shows up in this movie, dude, and Kurtwood Smith is the fucking grease that keeps dude. the wheels running. Yep. And, you know, again, he's an actor I always love. And he's so great in this dude. And this is pre-Boddicker, right? This is this right. is this is pre-Clarence Boddicker. And he's kind of doing a little... This is a taste of what you get in RoboCop. You knew he was a right. nasty motherfucker. But when you see him three years after this in RoboCop, you go, oh, yeah, that's that motherfucker. Yeah. He didn't die at the end of Flashpoint. He just moved on up to Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> but you get, you get him and then you... Dude, then the... Cherry on top, you get Rip Torn, yeah, Sheriff Wells, who plays a you know plays a pretty significant part in this whole thing. Even though his screen time is limited, what does he have? Like two scenes, three scenes, yeah. yeah. But the girls, I mean, dude, this is Gene Smart, dude. I mean, what is it? This is like one of Gene Smart's first roles. Oh yeah, I mean, this is one of the first times I'd ever seen her. Oh yeah, and dude, what about Wyatt's line when the, when the when they're looking at them? They're, they're both under the hood, Bobby and uh, and. Uh, Ernie, under the hood, and you know, then he's yeah. like, "Which one you want? <laughs> the mean one." <laughs> good, you're a sick man. I mean, dude, that just is such a good yeah. line. It is, and I, uh, and one of the funny things is like when when they're this. Well, I'm trying to remember who it was. Damn it, who's the actor that was um, the one guy that was doing all the drugs? Right? It was like, oh no, no, it was actually no, it was Miguel. That I think about it, wasn't it? Miguel was hitting on another girl as he's walking back to the table. Yes. Totally. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. It's Ferrer. Yeah, Cause they're, they're all, they're out and he's with this girl and he, but he's still hitting on, um, Tess Harper. Yeah. Who looks so weirdly like the lost Arquette sister, right? Like she, or, she or, like, does. Or, or like she's their cousin or something. Right. Like I was like, Holy man, I never noticed that before, but she, yeah. you know, she, she looks, uh, she looks like she, you know, could be Roseanne and Patricia's cousin and dude, Tess Harper's greatness. They're both good. Yeah. 
dude. And then Robert's Blossom shows up and I totally forget. Every time I watch the movie, I forget he's in it until he's there. Right. Because I don't know. I mean, I've seen him younger than this, but also I'm used to seeing him a lot older than this, right? And other things, you know. Yeah. But his bit is kind of the crazy old desert rat. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he's perfect. Yeah. It, and he did so many things even after this. Yeah. That's the thing is I think we saw, I think that most of his work that we're familiar with was after. Right. Lots of TV, you know. Well. Yeah, he's, he's, he's so, he was always, he was a, that was probably the thing I got most excited about when I had a bit of his trailer. I'm like, oh, shit. Dude. Nice. He, right. I, like to me, he, it was his character from Close Encounters, right? Yep. <laughs> you just, mm -hmm. just, there, the there he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but to go back to Gene for a moment. Yeah, Gene was still a year away from doing Designing Women. Yeah, totally. So so she was a total baby here. I would have I thought that maybe this was the first year, right? She's on Designing Women. Here's a Bart you can go do on a the theatrical uh, on a feature film that seemed to be that was a pattern in the 80s when oh, people yeah. would do like number eight in the call sheet or something like that because you're a TV person that's back when they carried that stigma oh and yeah totally but she's great both her and Tess but Tess has done a lot more feature films than Gene has but she they're both wonderful and it playing their like kind of they're kind of like best friends and yeah. They hook up with our with our stars, and they're you know they're they're kind of there for you know to, so that we have a little bit of you know they, they they don't do a lot, but what they do is important, you know. And in the fact right. that you know, basically, again, I can't I can't I can't say much without giving it away, like how involved they are in the whole thing. But uh, like everybody, it's what this is a, this is one of those economic movies, right? Like where everybody everybody you're introduced to has a they're they're not just throwaway characters. They're all there, like they're they're there as devices, right? They're there to give right. you information. They're there to, right. they're there to connect the dots, and so you really kind of have to pay attention to what everybody's doing. Kevin Conaway as Brooke is actually yep. pretty hilarious too. Yep, he's the man you love to hate. Yep, <laughs> if you will. Yeah, it's this is it's such a strange movie, like because it's it's kind of a western. It's kind of a buddy cop movie. It, again, like we said, it, it's it's kind of Lethal Weapon before Lethal Weapon. Right. Again, the the other comparison I was going to make, and you'll 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 totally agree. It's the scene at with the plane, dude. Yeah. How rigs? He doesn't get any more rigs yeah. than that. <laughs> like no, no. That whole sequence. Yeah. And, the, and him coming out of the water, all of that, dude. Yes, it was <laughs> right? And like the, the whole thing, like, where's, where's Peter McAllister? I mean, I feel like that's the only piece missing. And I, I think Boddicker yeah. is standing in for, uh, uh, or Kurtwood is, Carson is standing in for, uh, you know, General yeah. Peter McAllister at that point. Right, because the crossover with government and government agencies is pretty clever and pretty clear between the, the two movies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th yeah. this movie's this movie is uh it was it's almost there to being like a, a classic. I feel like it's 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 not again, for me it's a classic cuz I, you know, I I fell in love with it when I saw it when I was 14 and I still fucking love it. I mean, even even the dated stuff that I mentioned earlier doesn't in, doesn't ruin my viewing experience of this movie because <laughs> I'm sorry the trailer moment is so bad. Which one? The, the accident in the beginning. Oh yeah, the tra yeah, tra yeah. I mean, dude, it's 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 like it's like Fall Guy level of uh, of complexity, yeah. right? Like you're like yeah. it, it literally it's shot like <laughs> a stunt from any NBC TV show from 1984, but. 
I mean, that those things don't really, they don't take away from the movie so much no. that, I, I mean, that I can't enjoy it. I mean, I'm here for the performances. I'm here for the right. story because I think the story is good. I mean, this is a movie to me that like, you could totally remake this movie and people would be like, oh, that's fucking genius. Right. <laughs> it, when, when, they're, when they're culling through the vast library of the last hundred years of cinema, you know, and they keep remaking the same shit, you know, steal this, remake this. I mean, I, I, would, I would see it in a second. Yeah, and honestly, I could easily see Shane Black remaking this movie. Yeah. I mean, it feels like it's Shane Black. <laughs> I think it might be, the, we might have it backwards. <laughs> I mean, I think this was this is based on a novel too, right? Yeah, yeah. That's another thing that's nutty about this movie, that its path here is, is that it was written from a novel from 75, and it was originally written for Paul Newman and Warren Oates to star in. Oh, wow. With Martin Ritt being the director. I could see that, right? A hundred percent. Oh yeah. yeah, and there and it's. And I don't think in it's the a 70s, hard sell. To right, f- like we said, ten years earlier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the, it, and I'm sure it's easy to figure out who plays who here because I mean, yeah. you think about it, Warren Oates and Chris Christopherson. I mean, they're they're like that the same age, right. roughly. Yeah, well, ten years before. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, you know, uh, Paul Newman is Logan and. Uh, and Warren Oates is Ernie Wyatt. Yeah, I mean, hundred percent, I can. Yeah. yeah, I love the shootout at the end. I love the uh, oh yeah that whole yeah. bit. I mean, it's funny too because some of the, the characters they also kind of remind me of a little bit. There's a, there's a little bit of uh, White Sands, like White Sands borrows a little bit of that, like in the finale, right? Like the finale right. of this and the finale, right? So the, the way that the the government agencies. Or you know, and you don't know who to trust, or you know who's full of shit, who's not. Right. Uh, it's a little more black and white in this movie. Who's who's who? There was no way that Chris Christopherson's a bad guy. You just you're like, nope. <laughs> right. He's wearing a fucking. If you rip off that Border Patrol uh, onesie <laughs> that he's wearing, <laughs> you know, when he when he takes off his shirt, I'm surprised that there wasn't a big like H on his chest. <laughs> right. But again, this this the movie it does so many things right and. Uh, right. I mean, it's just iconic, and some great photography too. Oh yeah, especially the desert stuff. Like when they're when they're out in the desert, uh, you know, digging, and just there's, there's there's quite a lot to like about this movie. That score, right, dude? Yep. How in the fuck did they get Tangerine Dream to score this? That that that's the one. That that was the thing. I was just like, this seems, this seems so odd, right? Because yeah. but it's a ten million dollar movie, which you know, it's not that's going to town. It's not it's going to town money, right? I mean, right. a $10 million project um, starring these guys at, the, at that time, uh, it's, yeah, but that's them. The score is great, too. Yep. And it's funny because if you didn't know anything about Tangerine Dream and you were watching this movie, you'd be like, this reminds me of Thief. Because <laughs> <laughs> it does. Why. It's, it, I mean, it's not like they're ripping themselves off, but it's very similar uh, in, in the vibe to the score of Heat. Right. Or not Heat, but... Uh, Thief. Right. Yeah. And I love Tangerine Dream, dude. Like, I, I, you know, they could score every fucking movie for all I care. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is like, uh, I mean, this is a few years after Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. Yep. Um, same year he did Prince of, Cid- Prince of the City. I always tripped out too by the Prince of the City. Uh, that was always so weird because it was like one of those handful of VHS releases that had double discs, uh, double tapes. Right. Because um, it was so damn long. Um, but he was in a, he was doing, he was at a point 
retreat was where he was just doing stuff because he wanted to. He was doing lots of theater around this time. Yeah. He did. I mean, he was. He did with that. They did that streetcar named Desire, right? Was that the one yeah. with Jessica Lange? Yes, the one. Uh, yes, it is. I believe so. Yeah. Uh, he well, he also dude. There's you know, he's also he's also around. He did Smooth Talk with him and Laura Dern. Which if you haven't seen Smooth Talk, uh, it get ready and sit down and prepare to be shocked and odd and all those things. I'm gonna correct myself. And Margaret was Blanche, right? Because the one with Jessica Lange is Alec Baldwin. Yeah. 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 Let's and strike this, this from the record, Your Beverly, Honor. De- Beverly D'Angelo. <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, he was like doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. And American Playhouse, Once Upon a Time in America. I mean, who wasn't in that fucking right, movie? Right, exactly. So he was doing stuff to just do stuff. And that was because he could, because he gained a lot of favor with studios around town back when it was such a different thing to get a movie when you're in good with somebody at a studio head, they didn't, they said, Oh, you want to treat Jericho part. I mean, it would, no matter how big the part was, how small the part was, he, he was into it. And that was a, but he's always been that way. Yeah, man. If that wasn't the case, he wouldn't do things like dead heat or, you know, deep rising. <laughs> he wouldn't do movies like that. Right. If he wasn't out just to have a good time. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, and then he had, you know, he, had that, he started, started to come back in the night and not even a comeback. Cause he didn't really go away. It wasn't like, it wasn't like people got right. tired of seeing him and things. He just, he just was like, nah, I don't do that. I'm going to go, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like he was a guy who kind of, you know, he really, he really liked to honor his craft and, right. you know, he, he kind of let his heart lead, you know, his heart. He, he, I don't think he doesn't strike me as a guy who was worried about a paycheck. Like he wasn't in it for like, Oh, I'm going to make this much money doing this. And I would make, you know, I can't do theater. This I'm going to, I need, I got to get a big movie role. Right. I think he just loved acting. Right. And for him, that meant like, whether it's TV or film or stage work, uh, yeah. you know, he just kind of did his thing, man. And, you know, you got to admire that. Yeah. He, his, and I don't, and I can't just say filmography because he did so much television. Oh, yeah. yeah and a lot of these TV movies, that's, that's the irony, of course, that he makes HBO's first uh, theatrical movie, but he did a lot of television, a lot of HBO movies. Oh, yeah. And uh, some major, major things that he worked on, like when he played, because I, I mean, I mentioned Streetcar because that was uh, that was a miniseries, but he played Jagger for Hoover in the Jagger oh, Hoover yeah, movie totally. on, in 87. He played Jack Dempsey too at one point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Dude, here's that's something right. that people forget. He's in fucking Empire Strikes Back. He's got like a little bit part, right? He's like one of the guys on but Hoth, like you see right? his face. He's on, yes, he's, he's Echo Base yeah. Trooper. Uh, he's in, he, that's his character, <laughs> but he's, yeah, he's on Hoth. I think he's there. You see him either, it's either when, it's either when they go out to look for Han or it's when they're evacuating Hoth. I can't remember because it's been a while since they've yeah. seen it. But yeah, I mean, and dude, but the, for me, the quintessential role before Flashpoint was uh, in 1941 as uh, Chuck Stretch Satarsky. Yeah. But again, yeah, man, Treat was a guy who was always good, dude. Always. Yep. Like I never, there was never a point where I was like, mm-hmm. you know, he, he, had, he was a good looking dude. He always fit the part. Weirdly enough, he was a guy who I wanted to see. If, if Treat Williams was in a movie, I would try to see it. I would rent it on video, yeah. whatever it was. Cause you know, he was an actor I knew when I was a kid, like, you know, the men's club was another movie. I think it's him and Scheider and Kaitel. I didn't even know anything about that movie. I just remembered working in the video store and the box came out and all their names were on it. And I was like, I'm in. Yeah. 
he was definitely a guy that that you could always you could always count on and you didn't it didn't matter the role he was playing because he he didn't always play the good guy he didn't always play the no. straight laced guy which would that's what made him so unique because most of the guys that are handsome like him you can see this about Alec Baldwin early in his career too for him to do Miami Blues yeah that's I mean he didn't did he never did anything like that again no but because he couldn't like once he reached a certain point he couldn't go backward Tree didn't care man he didn't give a damn no man totally yeah. He was always looking for something to stick his teeth into. Right. He wasn't looking to be, you know, again, I don't, I feel like there wasn't a, you know, he wasn't always looking for a paycheck. You know, it was about the work and, you know, and we don't, we don't, we don't get a lot of that these days. No. But this is a movie that I think people should see, like, you know, sort of just throw out the, you know, this sort of chi, the chintzy production design. And like, yeah. But the, the camera works good. I mean, yep. there's a lot to love about it. Like I said, it's in it. I don't mean it in a shaggy dog way. Cause we, you know, we'll, we usually say like, this is a shaggy dog movie. I don't think this is a shaggy dog movie. What I love about no. this movie, it's pretty lean and it's to the point. Right. There's not a lot of fat. It's, you know, you're getting the story and you're getting it and you're getting it quickly. It doesn't overstay its welcome. Um, right. And at the end, you're kind of like, holy shit, dude. Because there, there is, I mean, the ending, the very ending, you know, when, uh, I mean, again, I can't, I don't want to ruin it, but. Uh, you I know. know. <laughs> it, it, it uh, you know, it's not, it's not what you're used to seeing. It's not, it's not the kind of ending you were used to seeing. No. I mean, when you're, a, especially when you're a kid, you're like, wow, that's, you know, we always talk about To Live and Die in LA and how that movie ends. I mean, this, right. you could say the same thing about Flashpoint. It, right. It's the kind of ending we talked about before where. Real life. When we did. Yeah, right. Exactly. When we did uh, April Fool last year, like those, when you look at movies like The Driver, those movies are like that. So it's not twist ending. That's just how storytelling was done back then. There is no, it's not twist. We, talk, we talked about it during November too. That's just storytelling. You know, but because this phrasing twist ending or the surprise ending, that kind of phrasing came out and it stuck. It became part of the global vocabulary. And, and then people say that now. We, we say it all the time because it's a familiar phrase for people. But this ending is just something you just don't see anymore. Is it a surprise ending? No, it's not a surprise ending. If you're watching it, it's intriguing. It's fun. It's There's so many things about it. But like I mentioned earlier... It feels like an 80s movie. And that's what's great yeah. about it too is like, that's the only time it dates itself is when it goes, oh yeah. And this thing that happened 20 years before that. <laughs> right. It's funny because we're further away from this movie now than we were from <laughs> that event. The event that they refer to. In the movie. Yes. So yeah, it's wild, right? It's right. funny too. There's the scene where um, Carson and Bobby are talking, and Carson's running off. You know, you were this, you were that. I mean, the, the, he's that's all. What, that's everything. Christopherson was before he became famous. Right. He was a helicopter pilot. He's a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, you know, so I mean, if if you know anything about Christopherson, you're getting a little sort of history lesson on not only Bobby Logan but on Chris Christopherson in that little scene. I always thought that was kind of cool too. Right. You know, this, this movie is funny. It's a kind of a good pairing. I don't know if I, oh, I, I don't know if it, I just think that because Rip Torn is in both movies and they're both set sort of in the border desert, but it kind of like, after I watch this, I always want to watch Extreme Prejudice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. This movie, well, all the movies we're going to talk about this month, you can taste the fucking dirt in your mouth. You're fucking, you know, the lack of water on your lips 
while you're watching. I mean, you know, it all of them, you know, leave you with a mouthful of dirt at the end. Right. February, you know, you know, not only is there something buried, but you feel like you've been buried by the time you're done watching. Right. It's like, right. So yeah, this, this movie, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I was, I was very excited that we were finally going to talk about this movie because I really do like this movie a lot. Okay. So here's the thing. So I, I mentioned earlier, I mentioned cat, I mentioned streetcar, but I meant cat on a hot tin roof. And then even though Jessica Lang is in both of them, right. the reason why I was making the reference to that one is because Rip Torn's in that one. <laughs> right. And, and Paul Newman was in, uh, here's a, there's another thing. Paul Newman played, uh, brick <laughs> in, uh, the movie version of cat on a hot tin roof with Liz Taylor. Serpentine. It's like snake. Why did it have to be snakes? Why? Why? Yeah, man. So anyway, we're all over the place. That's flashpoint. Uh, yeah, we're about to start talking about Dana Carvey if we don't get out of here now. Flashpoint, nineteen eighty four. William Tannen. Yeah, we know we, we William Tannen. Interesting, right? Like, I feel like he was right. he was best known as a writer. I would think. Yeah, and producer. I mean, he still directed a handful of movies, yeah, but, it but nothing wasn't... as good as this. Like to me, no. like the rest of them, they don't even like the rest of his movies are like the movies we were talking about. Like he directed a couple of Chuck Norris movies, Hero and the Terror <laughs> and The Cutter. I think what happened was, is that this was, the, I mean, I hate to say it like this, but like this was his big shot kind of thing. We're like, we're going to put you with these guys. And they, I mean, he, this was his, you know, this was his feature film debut. Right. Because he just done a short before that. And everything after that is kind of not as high profile as this. It's just no. probably the best way to say it. I think the, the, the next best and the next biggest thing that I can remember from what, just looking at his filmography, he directed the uh, Night Shift video by the Commodores. <laughs> oh my God, did he really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the Night oh Shift. Good. Sweet sounds coming down. Yeah. That was a big deal because... Yeah, because it was the first uh, Commodore's video with that. It was after Lionel Richie had left the group. And uh, it was a big deal because it was all basically about Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye and Jackie Wilson. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, look, William Tannen might not have done much after this, but I got to say, look, here's the thing. And I think we've said this before. If you direct one fucking movie and knock it out of the park, yeah, that's more than most people get. You know, this, everybody gets their shot. You know, you got to take it and, you know, and he did it right out of the gate. So everything that, you know, anything that came after, who cares? I mean, for me, like, I don't even know if I've ever seen The Cutter or Hero in the Terror. I think I've seen Hero in the Terror. (laughs) Uh, But look, William Tannen, Flashpoint. I've seen this movie. I can't even tell you how many times I've seen it, but I still enjoy it. Every time I watch it, I'm like, yeah, man, it's just got that. There's just something about it that is like, feels like it's nostalgic but it's also, it scratches that itch for that noir. And, you know, and it fits nicely into that little, you know, noir niche known as desert noir. <laughs> yeah. Flashpoint. Finally, it's on Cinemax. Dude, for the longest time, this thing wasn't streaming and there was no DVD. I had a VHS of this forever. Right. And then they put out that DVD like around 2005 or something or 2004 with that shitty cover. Right. You know, if you're if you're just looking to you know a good way to and it like I said it's 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 brief, right. it's lean. You're get, it, dude. This movie's as lean as Chris Christopherson. <laughs> yeah, it's like I said, it's it's on Cinemax. That's how I watched it. How'd the stream look? How'd it look? Good. 
It looked great. It was like, and it's the only way you're going to see in HD. It's not super cleaned up. Remember when Dragon Slayer came out before that 4K version? Yep. Where you could still see, you know, a little, the, the, you know, the the, the dust and yeah, dirt absolutely. at the beginning. It was there. And so it, it actually sold the whole vibe because it yeah. felt like the VHS. It felt really cool. But, but the picture looked great. And I'm like, I was like, oh, do I really want to pay 10 bucks? For, uh, I'll, I'll just make sure that I watch a lot of Cinemax this month. So that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. No, absolutely, man. I mean, right now you can also, you can, you know, if you go through through Prime, you can, you can start a free seven-day trial of Cinemax. I'd already, I had already used it. So oh, yeah. I'm just saying. No there you go. I haven't used it, but it's always an option. Just remember, yeah. delete it, cancel it if you, you don't can, like it. And but but here's the thing: if you've already done it through Prime, go do it on Hulu because you can do it there too. Yeah, you can do a seven day trial. They they don't do it based on address or name or anything like that. They just do like, hey, you're this you're this account, and that's it. They don't. It's not so picky. Right. Yeah. Anyway, Flashpoint, 1984. Watch that shit. Yeah. Get in there. So you want to follow the show on the socials? You can follow us at Karate Pod on Twitter, Insta. And Letterboxd, if you want to follow Corey on Letterboxd, it's Corey underscore Culp. And on Instagram is Culprit97. And if you want to follow some other socials and other linkage, you can look at the bottom of our episode show notes under Karate in the Garage linkage, and you'll find everything there. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, I'm at rockandroller 33 If you'd like to follow me on Letterboxd, I'm at Tom Cody on Letterboxd. If you'd like to follow me at Blue Sky, it's the real John Ladd at Blue Sky. <laughs>